0: for being here i'm glad you hear you are coming like you just said coming to us from the future how you doing yeah good morning how are you doing great thanks for being here so i guess just to get the ball rolling here get us talking get the conversation going why don't you give a little bit of your background to the audience so they kind of know what we're what they're jumping into about listening to us talk here okay so effectively serial
1: entrepreneur 30 years as an entrepreneur I started my first business in 1990, actually, so 32 years ago, um, and listed that or reverse listed that on the Johannesburg Stock Exchange in 1996, Uh, got into venture capital for a number of years after that, moved to Australia in 99, uh, worked for a venture fund, listed that on the Australian Stock Exchange in, in 2000, which was great timing, You know, three months before the tech crash in 2001. Mm. and then i started a financial services business by coincidence and a lot of my businesses have started by coincidence and i still own that business today it's done some somewhere north of 3 billion in in residential mortgages and about 8 years ago i after a, a cardiac uh, after getting two cardiac stents i decided to shift my focus to my passion which is being on stage and talking to audiences and sharing experiences and creating excellence in people and in business.
0: Mm, I love it, man. So growing up, did you already, and like, I guess, did you always know you were going to be a serial entrepreneur or was this just something that kind of fell into your lap or just opportunities came by and you decided to run with it or how did it happen?
1: Um, no, I actually, I started my first businesses when I was 12 or 13. Oh. Um, and and probably at the age I started working just after the age of fourteen, um, working I had a weekend job and a holiday job at an electronics store, um, but even then I was entrepreneurial. I, you know, I remember a woman came into the store and bought a car radio. Now in those days there weren't all these fancy you know fitted things. It was you actually fitted them in the back of the dashboard with two little knobs sticking out. Gotcha. And. And I was totally, I've had this belief in my own sense of ability since I was a kid. And so I turned around to her and said, oh, yeah, I can do it for you. So she came over to my house and this 15 or 14-year-old stuffed up her car, basically, and actually cost me money. <laughs> um, but, but the lesson I learned there was that I can do stuff with my hands as a hobby, mm. but whatever I do. Do, and I'd still do that. I still do a lot of woodwork and creative woodwork and stuff like that as a hobby. Nice. But nice. whatever I'm going to do in my life has to use my brain, not my hands. Yeah. And so, yeah. So, you know, I started that business. And then I, uh, for a number of years in the uh, early 80s, I ran a mobile discotheque going out to do people's parties. I still have all my vinyl, which is now worth a lot of money. Um, but yeah. So, I, yeah. Uh, I, It's weird. I in year 10 at school, I was offered the opportunity to study either biology or accounting. And that's kind of opposite ends of the spectrum. And I chose accounting. And I actually remember the conversation with my teachers, and they said, But you're so clever. And that's not blowing my own trumpet, by the way. I was just academically smart at school. Sure. They said, Well, go and do biology and you can go and do medicine. And I said, no, I know I'm going to be in business, and therefore I want to do accounting because I don't ever think I'm going to study accounting. I just want to know enough about understanding how accounting works so that I can run my own
0: business. Nice. So yes, it's nice. been there for many, many years. Yeah, it's like you know, you just kind of knew it was all coming together, so you made all the right decisions to make it happen. I mean, you're know, not many people would say, "No, I want to know accounting just so I know actually know how to run a business." You know. Or I, to me, I wouldn't think that many people would say that, but you, you're you thinking differently. You're thinking outside of the box. And that's what, you know, would you agree that kind of what makes people, you know, I guess, successful and non-successful when you think kind of think differently, and not go the same road path or same, whatever you want to say, stories as everybody else?
1: Absolutely. I a lot of people come to me as a coach and, and I hate the word coach, by the way, I prefer mentor Ooh. because I think people have this inherent ability and you've got to mentor it. A coach tells people what to do. So that's just a sorry, a little, a little bugbear of mine. But they come to me as a mentor and they're starting a business or they want to start a business. And they're firstly they're overthinking it. They're on spreadsheet number 27. And that's 26 spreadsheets too many. So 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 you know, that to me is the first problem I see now is that people overthink things. They but but I think that everyone inherently You have to actually see the opportunity in the name of my book. In fact, you know, the the blurb on the back of the book says, sums it all up. It says, you know, business doesn't have to be complicated, business can be simple. Sometimes you just dive in and adjust your course while you're moving. And that, you know, sometimes we're so fixated on the course we've taken, we can't uh, deviate. And, And I'm a very much a believer in. Take the opportunity,
0: see how it goes. And if it doesn't work, do something else. Well, that's kind of that's one of the good things, though, is that you, like you just said, you learn from your mistakes. And if it doesn't work, then you just do something else, like you just said. But a lot of people don't see it that way. It seems like if they start to take that chance and want to do something, and if it fails, they instantly just go down a dark road. And then there's, like, well, I don't even know why I try. I'll just take the safe and easy road. You know, that's how I used to think that the safe and easy road was where it was at. Well, you learn more from your mistakes than
1: you do from your successes. Yeah, I agree, hundred percent. You know, and that—that that, that I think is the key—is that—is that if you can successfully learn from your mistakes, and I think that's probably the—the the problem is that people, you know, I was talking to a, a friend who is a counselor with uh, Lifeline. You know, the I don't know if it's called Lifeline in the US. It's a helpline for people contemplating self-harm. Yep, I'm just
0: talking
1: about. And. Um, She was, you know, I said to her, yeah, the statistic is one in five men suffer from depression. And she said, it's actually, you know, a greater statistic. One in five is what you see in the media. And and that was just men. She wasn't being sexist. We were just talking about men. And, you know, as it so happened. But, um, but yeah, so a lot of people take those failures to heart. Sure. Um, But. You have to you have to take your failure to heart. I mean, you have to take it to heart, but in terms of a learning experience, yeah. You know, so I, one of my one of my classic failures is um, when after I left the venture fund in two thousand and one, a friend of mine from South Africa called me and he said he's got this amazing product. It's a CD storage system, and the future of storage is going to be DVDs and CDs. Interesting insight. And uh, we should look at the uh, we should look at the securing the rights for Australia.
0: Mm. So I
1: hopped on a plane, as you do, as a as an entrepreneurial spirit, went off to a little town in Germany called Karlsruhe, and negotiated the rights to distribute these products in Australia. Fairly simple. Sure. Ordered you know forty thousand dollars worth of stock because I was obsessed with this product, but I had done zero market research um i got back to australia and i discovered that as a single product line seller none of the big chains were interested in talking to me you needed to have multiple products to get into their in into their barcoding system and their systems and so i ended up you know pretty much giving that stock to someone about 5 years later who sold it and helped him on his way but, you know, he sold it to the $2 stores or the $1 stores, whatever the, you sure. know, the, the particular definition is. But it was a dismal failure because I, I I loved the product, but I didn't understand the
0: market that I had to get it into at all. Mm. Wow. So what did you do to start to learn that market? Is that just something to do in your research and studying and working on Well,
1: it? no, I... I realised something else, and there's, so there's a second major revelation in my life, is that I'm not a physical product kind of guy. I'm a service kind of guy. Okay. And so my serve my business in South Africa that we started in 1990, um, put that into context: Nelson Mandela was released in 1990. Okay. Okay. And the African National Congress, which is now the ruling party in South Africa, was unbanned in 1990. Okay. So when you put those two events together six months later, my partner and I decided to start a consulting business, you know, 26-year-old, young white kids with no business experience. We thought we'd go and teach businesses how to how to run their business. A little flaw in that theory, but it didn't stop us going out there. Um, after a couple of months, we won one contract, but then we were, it was suggested to us that we start an education business because we both have master's degrees and uh, you know, we thought, yeah, that sounds like a good idea. So we started an education business. We were in the right place at the right time. Uh, no doubt about that. With the and with Mandela's release and the unbanning of the ANC, South Africa experienced the surge in the need for the previously disenfranchised masses, the, the majority of the black population wanted education. And so we started an education business without again. Without thinking about the research, without doing anything, we found premises, we found teachers, we started an education business. We had 20 students in the second half of 1990. By 1996, when we reversed into a listed shell, we had 4,000 students, six campuses, and a 50,000-square-foot building. Wow, okay. You know, And so we did a lot of that through weird marketing, through through low cost, what they
0: call now guerrilla marketing—it didn't have a name in those days. Right. Wow. Wow. That must be. Well, I mean, what did you ever think it was going to go that big? I mean, was that or was that your dream, or was it just kind of taking it step by step? It was a step by step.
1: But my partner and I, you know, so we would advertise. We would have these open days or registration days, and and. So there was a bit of logic in what we did. When you go to university, and again, I'm not sure of the US system, but from what I understand, people all arrive on campus on one particular day, right. and you know it's a vibe. There's a vibe around everyone arriving and registering and finding their way around. So we were we took premises across the road from the main university in Johannesburg, University of Lodzwarth, and we wanted to create this vibe. And so we had opening days or registration days where all the students would come and register and buy their books and all that kind of stuff. We were effectively a junior college, in, 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 uh, somewhere between a technical college and a, and a junior university that, that was where we were positioned. And we always joked with each other on the morning of this, we'd say, what happens if we threw a party and everybody came? (laughs) Okay. Um, so, so it wasn't, you know, we, we could cope with 50 students to 500 students because we had a ready source of academics across the road at the university who wanted to have a side hustle and earn some extra money. So we kind of knew that we could scale the business very quickly if the numbers of students increased mm. because we could literally walk onto the campus, go to the accountancy department and say, does anyone here want to teach finance at 50 bucks an hour for the next 12 weeks? Got you. So, so you know, we 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 didn't think through all the logistics all the time. We had classrooms, we had a building, and we went out and advertised and did all this guerrilla marketing, and it was successful. I mean, we we had the right formula, and as I said we grew rapidly. So, 1990 we started. 92 we opened, uh, one campus. 93 we opened two more. 94 we opened two more.
0: Wow. Yeah. So. Earlier, you said something about you were kind of in the right place at the right time. I mean, do you think a lot of that, you know, when talking about success and, you know, being an entrepreneur and like, is that kind of just one of the better things to happen? If you just kind of get a stroke of luck, I guess you could say, and, you know, you're in the right place at the right time and bam, magic happens or? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I, I fully accredit what was happening
1: politically in South Africa to a large degree to our success. Mm. um but but you can't just rely on luck I mean uh, you know you 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 don't actually put the luck out there I've only analyzed it over the last few years since I wrote my book in 2018 and oh I published the book in 2018 there's another story of, of of how long it took me to write a 120 page book um but only then did I really start analyzing the success of that and and even my mortgage business in Australia. None of them were really by design. They were by by backing myself wow. um, or backing in, in, in South Africa, my partner and I backing ourselves and saying, we have the ability to do this. We're not sure what this is, but we'll adjust it as we move along. Mm. And so... So yeah, we were in the right place at the right time, but did we analyze it? No. Now looking back, I go, oh my God, there was a perfect storm of this need for education and us offering education and being really cool and hip and friendly and young
0: and (laughs) all those other things. Yeah. Did you always learn to kind of bet on yourself and have that confidence in yourself or is this something that you had to teach yourself and you kind of got from life, your journey, your people you've met, or books you've read, or whatever? Well, no, not necessarily books. I mean, I, my my late
1: father took me to Toastmasters when I was 14. Okay. And so by the age of 20, I was still at university. I was the South African Toastmasters champion. I, I won the, the, the South African Toastmasters championship. I wasn't allowed to compete internationally because I was a young white kid. Um and South Africa was the pariah of the world at that point in the mid-80s. Uh, you know, a past, Toastmasters, a Toastmasters, yeah, Toastmasters. Yeah. What is that? I don't think I don't know what that is. So Toastmasters is a I was gonna say a self-help organization, but um it's a peer-driven organization where you go and you learn There's So there's two organizations worldwide: Toastmasters and Rostrum. Um, and both of them really you go through a learning process driven by peers who've been there before you, okay. where you prepare speeches, um, generally five to seven minutes, um, and you get evaluated on those speeches. And once you evaluate it and pass that level, you move on through the organization and and you develop. And and this, the the cleverness of it is that the speeches develop your skill in hand gestures, in talking to camera, in doing a serious topic, doing a humorous topic, all those things that really set me up in my 20s with a level of confidence that comes from being able to speak in public. Okay, I see. You know, so, so, so that, that contributed part of it. Then I did my MBA in 1988, where a lot of the MBA program is presenting to your peers, mm. so is, sure. is is doing some work and presenting to your peers. So, that also became a part of it um so i think i think everybody suffers from imposter syndrome i at, at in my late 50s now still suffer from imposter syndrome a lot of the time um and that's weird i've had lots of success i've done lots of things but there are always those moments of nagging doubt where you go am i good enough for this sure. you know sure. am i going to win that contract but sometimes you just have to slap the you know slap that out the way and you know and 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 push it aside and go
0: yeah i can do this yeah no imposter syndrome creeps up on me a lot and i agree with you 100% that you know a lot i think a lot more people say they have it or or they more than they let on or more they actually speak about and even if it's not exactly imposter syndrome but there's something there always like if you want to call it doubt or Whatever, but it happens a lot. But it's one of those things that you have to learn to control, and that's kind of what, like you said, what you did—you slap it out of the way. And like when I start to kind of get it, I put a red stop sign up in my head, like, "All right, no, so you got to stop this. This is not right." But I mean, do you, but do you see it creep up on you in certain times? I know, like you just talked about a contract, but does it come up in certain times, like you know, it's probably going to start happening, or is it just random?
1: No, it's random. But I mean, I, I'll use the example of of my book, so. Um in 2012, in 2013, I had two cardiac stents while training for a marathon. I didn't have a heart attack. Thankfully, I dodged that bullet because I had a very good doctor and a very good mother-in-law. Um, my mother-in-law said, You're looking gray, go and see the doctor. My doctor said, You're looking gray, let's do some tests. And they found out that I had two blocked arteries and I ended up right. having two stents. But I had just finished a season of triathlons. I was training for a marathon. If they hadn't intervened, I would probably have had a heart attack. So Mm. Just put that into a a context. But about a year after that, I went, you know what, I really got to follow my passion, and that's being on stage. So my mortgage business, which I'll mention a bit later, my, my financial services business was built by me being on stage. So a lot of property groups would get me out. I would stand on stage. I would talk about the journey to buying and investing and building a property portfolio. And I'm not an ex-banker. So I spoke in words that people understood. Okay. And I sold over a billion dollars of mortgages from stage. Wow. You know, over, over about a 15-year period. Gotcha. And so, you know, that that and my love of being on stage and interacting. And, and to me, the the truth, the, the real thing is, yes, you get paid beautifully to be on stage. But seeing the lights come on in people's eyes when they get it. And they joining the dots Mm. and the ability to explain a complex subject like finance in simple terms So, so so that was what i'd been doing and then i went but hang on a second i've done all this stuff you know the business in south africa building the business here in australia other businesses that i've been involved with why don't i actually start talking about how to build businesses sure and so that's how i transitioned i still own the financial services i still see clients But I transitioned into this uh, phase, if you want to call it a professional speaking. I call it public speaking, and I was very soon corrected that I'm a professional speaker not a public speaker. So that was in 2013. Well, there's a big difference, and now I'm a certified uh, speaking professional, and only about 1,500 worldwide. So um, I, I started writing the book. Actually, my very first professional speaking gig was at a mortgage conference in Melbourne, which is you know 4 hour flight from here yeah and i i got on the plane after speaking twice at the conference going oh that was so great i had such feedback from the audience fantastic feedback i need to write this down and i started typing on my ipad which in and of itself is problematic cuz it's not tactile so you're watching your two fingers every minute okay <laughs> and i wrote 2000 words in those 4 hours wow. because it was just flowing Sure. What I'd spoken about the conference, I just started putting down. And then for the next year, every morning, I I sat, I got up at 5.30, got a coffee and wrote for about half an hour. Nice. And I wrote 40,000 words, 35,000 words. And I read the book from cover to cover. And I went, no one really wants to hear this. There was your imposter syndrome kicking in. Okay. I said, that's great. I've had a lot of fun and it's been cathartic for me to write the stuff and internalize it and whatever, um, no one wants to read it and I put it away. It was 2015. Uh And then in 2017, I happened to be in South Africa speaking at a conference and I had dinner with a cousin and um, his wife had been the the chief book buyer of the largest chain of bookstores in South Africa and had just started her own publishing business. So I said, look, no one's ever read this this manuscript. I'm going to email it to you. Tell me what you think. Is there a book in it? So about a week later, she came back to me and said, write another five to 10,000 words, and you've got a book. And I said, why do I have to write more? And she said, well, because we're going to edit it, and you need to be at about 35,000 words. So just write another two chapters, which I did. I took some blogs that I'd written and expanded those. and But I needed that external validation to get out of my own way because for two years, I've been sitting on this manuscript going, no one wants to read it.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I feel like that's what happens to a lot of people. They don't know how to get out of their own way.
1: Yeah. And sometimes, you know, so so until I was probably in my late 40s, I had this flaming independence where I never took advice. Okay. Okay. Um, yeah. Another flaw in my character. And, and it's got to do with this type A personality or Uh, Whatever you want to call it, and only you know the last ten years have I actually, uh, again, writing the book, I realised I'd had mentors my entire life, but I'd probably never recognised them as such. And I actually, in the book, I actually paid tribute to a number of those people who'd mentored me, even
0: though I probably didn't acknowledge them as much as I should at the time. Yeah, no, I can relate to a lot to that, and that growing up and stuff and they, and realizing it now that there was a lot of people who, you know, took a chance in me and confided in to me about, you know, trying to help me out or get you know, some type of success. And I ignore them at the time just because maybe it was ego driven. Maybe it was just, you know, being teenage adolescents where you think that, you know, more than everybody else in the world, but you know, there there's a lot of missed opportunities by me. I feel like just because of, you know, always finding a reason to say no to something, or just because, you know, maybe you didn't think that opportunity that you might be given right now, or how this person was trying to help you out was not cool at the time. So does that kind well, of make sense?
1: Yeah, absolutely. And and it's not even, it's actually, there's a line in the opening chapter of my book that says, I sometimes mix up the difference between confidence, overconfidence and arrogance. Ooh. Okay. and 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 what? again, I wrote that line because it was really showing a part of my body and part of my soul you know, because that's what I feel. The number of opportunities I've probably missed out on because of arrogance and ego. Yeah. Um, you know, is 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 enormous. But, but as I've got older, I've learned to temper that, and go, you know, I that person actually has something interesting to say.
0: Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's like the calm down and. Let's, you know, let that person talk and, you know, let me see exactly what they have to say Then I can judge later if it's good or bad or positive or negative. And if it's something that I actually want to take a chance with or pursue or whatever you want to say that, you know, maybe they're just not saying, you know, X, Y, and Z just to be heard. I mean, yeah, some people probably do do that, but I mean, through, but through life journeys and intelligence and just kind of street smarts, I guess you start to learn that you know, what's bullshit, what's not bullshit, I guess you could say.
1: Yeah, I mean, so one of the things I do now when I'm doing a lot of my workshops and seminars with people, is I talk about networking. Okay. And I'm not a networking specialist, but I talk about networking in the following context. When you meet someone for the first time at a function, you know, networking function, whatever. Yeah. And the first question they ask is, hey, hi, I'm John, you know, I'm rail, what do you do? and And I teach people never to answer the what. But I actually, you know if, if you think about it, you've got a what and this sounds a little bit like Simon sinek, but it's it's the same concept, but people have a what? they have a how and they have a why. Uh-huh. and if you bore them with the what, you might get to explain the how. you're never going to get to the why. And so if you took that 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 what, how and why, and flipped it on its head and answered with the why, what do you do? Well, I'm driven to help you know businesses become more excellent. That's sure. you know, my line. And they go, oh, great. How do you do that? Well, I work as a mentor, and, and I also run workshops and seminars. So what do you actually do? Oh, I'm a professional speaker. Now I've interacted three times with that person. But I've shown them a part of me, which is my why, my motivation, sure. my methodology, and then I've conceptualized it into a professional speaker. But I've had three interactions with them to judge their interest, to judge them, to judge, well, that's great. you know.
0: So what drives you? So I never ask, what do you do? I say, what drives you? Nice. Well, I've heard before that you should never and you can correct me if I'm wrong here, and I don't know where I picked this up yet, uh, up at, but at networking events and stuff like that, you should never open up with, you know, exactly. Hey, my name is Chris. What do you do? Just because it seems like that person is just trying to size you up based on what your your job title is or whatever your title is, rather than just like on what you said, like trying to actually get to know the person and what drives them and what motivates them, inspires them and X, Y, and Z. Oh, absolutely.
1: So, you, you know, you want to, you want to create rapport and you want to create rapport easily. So one of the workshops that I run um, fairly regularly for businesses is on communication, right? And and so the question you can ask naturally is, well, why is it different? Well, it's called communicating in full color. Okay. Okay. Um, And I actually teach people it's based around disc, which has been around since 1929 Um. And, and when you say disc, sometimes people go, "Oh, not that thing again." But the truth of it is, disc as a as an understanding of human behavior is incredibly powerful. And and I give out these things called the cube. It's got my picture on the front of it. Oh, I see. Okay. But it, what it does is, on the bottom, it has four a, a two by two matrix, four four divisions, and you actually look at the words on each of those four places on the bottom. And they define different behavioral styles. So if I just look at this one, amicable, friendly, good listener, patient, relaxed, sincere, stable. So if I'm talking to somebody and that comes across in the conversation, I can flip to the green. That was a green, by the way, that I picked. Go to the green side of the cube and it tells you how to communicate to them, what they're motivated for and how they react under stress. And and that's obviously a simplistic version of what I do in four hours. Nice. But but part of that four hours is exactly that, is is looking at how people shake hands, how people dress, yep. how do they conduct themselves. And then, yes, you're making some levels of assumption about their behavior, but then you're communicating with them in a way that really gets to the core of them. As opposed to you, you know, home opens, real estate agents, okay? Mm-hmm. Real estate agents. Go to a real estate to a, a home open, or they call them home opens in Australia. Yeah, I know what you mean. And um, you walk in, and the real estate agent says, Hi, my name is John. Thank you for coming to my home open. Then they take a deep breath and they start talking. And this house is and this house is so many square meters of land, and it's near a school, and this is what you're going to pay nothing there is directed at me, but it's supposedly directed at me. Gotcha. Because he hasn't asked a simple question to find out what I'm interested in and then direct the communication directly to what I'm interested in.
0: Yeah. I mean, that's a lot of it too, is just that, you know, you let other people start talking and even if it's not exactly what you want to hear that, but it's something to get the conversation going, you start to learn, you know, what they're interested in, so to speak. And that, you know, it's just like what you said with how, what, and why. But you know, you just if you instantly go off with exactly what you said, like, "Hey, it's so many square meters. It's next to the school or whatever." So most people, like for me, I would instantly be turned off. You know, just like yeah. But now, if I asked you a simple question when you walked into yeah. the house, right?
1: Yeah. One, one question. Okay, and I'll I'll make it up as I go along. But I, I've actually done this training for a lot of real estate agents, so I've kind of done this before, right? Yeah. So, you come in and I go, Hey, Chris, nice of you to come here. Uh, What are you specifically looking for? Oh, no, I'm just looking around. Sure. Okay. Sure. So then I say, Well, Chris, you know, people generally come to our home opens for one of four reasons because they're looking for a good price and something that'll be able to settle on reasonably quickly, Um, or they're looking for a place that gives them lots of entertaining space because that's their lifestyle. I have other clients who come and look for houses and, and 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 residences with intimate places where they can build one-on-one relationships and have cozy, intimate conversations. And then my 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 fourth group of clients come and look at the houses that we listed because you know the 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 local council rates are not very high and the electricity cost is quite low. It's got solar panels on the roof. And now I'm going to ask the question. So Chris. Which one of those four things is the most important to you? Mm, the entertainment.
0: Okay.
1: <laughs> right? So yeah. you'll go, Oh, yeah, I want to. I, we entertain a lot. Yeah. We want big open spaces, right? Yeah. So my whole conversation with you now is Oh, this house is amazing, it has this massive patio area, veranda outside, and the neighbors all cool. They don't mind late parties. And, you know, it's really well soundproofed in the garden. You've heard everything Uh, uh, you want to hear because you're interested in entertaining. Sure. And then you might, you know, it's often complimentary in a couple where one of the couples, you know, more interested in what's it going to cost us to own this house. And one is interested in having the parties, but then you switch your attention. Then you start divulging more information, but now you've got them. You've communicated with something that's
0: dear to them, which is how they're going to entertain them. Yeah, yeah, you kind of get what they, exactly what they're wanting and you're showing all the good things about it and you're going from there rather than just showing them stuff that they don't want to hear anymore, you know? Well,
1: yeah, but then also the, the real estate agent, when they walk home, when they get home and they go, oh, we saw five houses today. But remember, Rail, Geez, he got to the core of what we really like. Yeah, there you go. So, and I did nothing different. I asked one question
0: framed in a particular way. Mm. Yeah. There's a, there's a lot of that just, what is it kind of the gift of gab? That's kind of what we call it here, but just, or is it just, you know, practicing over and over, like what you were talking about the Toastmaster stuff and just kind of knowing like how to tweak these words and how to kind of figure out exactly what a person wants without having to go through, you know, the big circle. You can just kind of get to the core right in the middle. Does that take a lot no, of training for people learning this stuff? Or is it just kind of come naturally to people? Maybe that's just what I'm asking.
1: No, I, I actually run, you know, a half day and one day seminars called communicating in full color. Why is it called color? Because if I told you the behavioral styles were, were D, I, S, and C and, you know, dominance influence, and I asked you three months later, what's your style?
0: Mm. You wouldn't
1: remember. Sure. But when I run it and I say, oh, you're a, you're a yellow or a green, people remember that. I agree, uh, and then in the context when I do it at a conference, I run a say a two-hour workshop on communications, and I hand out little colored stickers that people put on their name badges. It's amazing at dinner that night, and I've seen this often at dinner that night. People are going, "Oh, so you're a green? So you're interested in relationships." Uh, you're interested in and, and so they now have a different level to communicate but now they're that they, they tuned into so so what we do in the product sense is we develop something called a product card with people so and what is a product card it is for each product that you sell or each group of products you actually pre-work out your messaging for each of the four colors and okay. there's a methodology and a technique to do that So that I'm talking to you and I work out, oh, yeah, you're a blue. Great. I'm going to give you all the blue information now related to
0: that product that you're interested in. I'm I'm with you now. I'm with you. Does a lot of this play into the psychology of human nature or just kind of knowing how humans react in certain situations and just kind of getting to core of that? Or is it just letting people talk and – Finding out it from there and letting them see their mistakes and let them see where they can kind of shine at too. Is it, or is it just kind of like most like nine times out of ten a person would probably do this rather than that? Does that kind of make sense?
1: Well, okay, so I mean, disc the 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 science behind the colors has been around hundred and three years now. Okay, uh, hundreds of millions of people have 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 had disc assessments done. On my website, I have a free one. It's about 20 questions or 15 questions. You click on that and it gives you a quick a quick overview of what your color would be, right? It's a sure. free service. It's not the detailed report, okay? So there's definitely a lot of psychology that's been built into it over the years and a lot of understanding of human behavior. Where I, am, I have taken it as a speaker is I've started analyzing what car people drive how they shake hands. And I'll give you a classic example. I'll use three American presidents. And this is not a political statement. Sure. By the way, this is just observations of human behavior. Okay. In my world, Donald Trump is a red. Okay. Okay. Because he wants to know how what's it going to cost and how soon can you deliver? Right? He's not interested in the detail. He's a big picture guy. And, 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 Some of the numbers, but not really people-oriented. I know that sounds like a criticism of Trump, but I'll put into context. Um, Bill Clinton was very much about; always had a smile. Majority of photographs of Bill Clinton have him smiling. Okay. Um, And so he was what we call a yellow, right? An influencer. He was about the big picture. How does what I do influence the team around me? Is it good for the team around me? And Barack Obama is the third example. He was a green, right, which is a steadiness or compliance kind of a steadiness person, and and but is about one-on-one relationships. So if you just looked at the way those three people shook hands, okay, if you look at video footage of them, Donald Trump. My name is Donald, right? Sure. Bill Clinton, two or three pumps, right? Okay. Because he's happy, he's excited, he's jumping around, he wants to do stuff, right? Whereas Barack Obama would, if you look a lot of the footage of Barack Obama, he would shake hands and put his other hand over the person's hand that he was shaking with, building a connection with them, building a relationship with them through that physical contact. Okay right it's a very simple analysis but when you start when you meet people you see how they shake hands you see how they dressed i'm a yellow right i'm yellow i'm that bill clinton influencer style you can see it in my dress code you can see the way my shirts are designed that, that they have different colors i wear a bright orange watch all part of that behavioral style i'm very much interested in the big picture of my team how does it
0: impact on my team right yeah you know I never paid much attention that's a great analysis what you just said but for example you know I just started a new job recently and you know of course you got to go around and meet all the people or whatever but I never really paid it I just thought you know shaking hands was just shaking hands and that now that it's come to terms in my head now that you know, like what Donald Trump does and Clinton. You said does a couple of pumps, and, but yeah. and when some people, like I've noticed, some people will do that. You know, and like grab your other hand while you shake it. It's building relationships. It's a yeah. Way. And, but, but I never, we, i just never paid attention to it. But that's cool though. Now that I kind of know the
1: science, a little bit of science yeah. behind it. And I mean, and you know, COVID was an interesting time because people weren't shaking hands, right? Sure, sure. But the Reds, the Reds in my world, um. Would couldn't help themselves, right? They would make up about 11% of the population. They would shake hands and then dive for that hand sanitizer, okay? <laughs> but they would always shake hands just because it's them. The yellows, and you saw it a lot on Zoom meetings, you know, the reds were frustrated because they couldn't have that physical contact. Yeah, The yellows would do the, the jazz hands. Hey, how are you doing? I, you know, I'm excitable, whatever. Sure. The The Greens want to build relationships. And so they would, during COVID, right hand, because they're not going to shake hands with you, right hand on on heart, on the left-hand side, and go, oh, Chris, it's so nice to meet you. I'm really looking forward to getting to know you. The Blue, on the other hand, don't like physical contact at all. They would normally shake hands, you know, the tips of two fingers, you know, and then step backwards away from you. But... The blue, on the other hand, they would do the namaste, not because they were spiritual, but because it took both their hands out of the equation for shaking hands and making physical contact.
0: Sure. They would actually
1: hold their hands together and go, namaste, or not namaste, but that that pose and go, nice to meet you, or whatever, and then take a step back. Ah, yeah. And so when you start analyzing the people around you, you come up with amazing things.
0: Is it, how should I put this? So like you were talking about, you know, you're wearing the bright orange watch and the way your shirts are tailored and stuff that, can a person almost overanalyze things too much? Like, you know, if they saw a big bright watch, you know, somebody would instantly be just like, oh, well, rail just wants to be seen. You know, that watch is not even cool, you know? But like for me though, he's like, you know, I like tailored shirts and I like, you know, loud colors on certain things. And I think it's kind of cool. And like, you know, you stand out a little bit from the uh, the narrative or the norm that we're like, everybody has to wear you know, black and white to wherever you go, right? But if you stand out a little bit, I think that stuff is usually cool. But like, I guess that's my question though, It is overanalyze kind of negate people's perception on other people? Well, you
1: you can't rely on one thing, okay? So so that's part of it. It's, it's about, again, when we do say a half day or one day sales training program, we, we talk about looking for the combination of clues. Okay, firstly, Nobody's ever one color. Everyone has a dominant color sure. and then a secondary color, right? Okay. And so that's that's important to know. And generally they're complementary. So they'll be what we call next to each other in the matrix. Okay. So you know, red and blue or red and yellow are next to each other. You're very you're hard to find someone who's red and green, which are opposites. Okay. Gotcha. In in the matrix. Right. So so you're looking for more than just one clue. You're looking at how the person's dressed, how do they carry themselves? How do they, you know, one of the politicians here in Perth that I was quite friendly with, he would come into a function, shake hands, and immediately start looking around the room to see who else he could go and talk to. All right. Okay. Very Donald Trumpish, very red behavior. Sure. Like, not building connections with people, what can I get out of this interaction? Gotcha. Okay. okay. Um, so that you look at those sorts of cues. So yes, you can overanalyze, but sometimes just by by asking that same question that I, asked, that, I, that I teach real estate agents to ask, you know, just in the context of a networking thing, you know, is most people work with me because of one of four reasons. Do, 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 do Which one of those makes the most sense? Doesn't have to be work with me. You know, you can talk about the context of most people work without company. You know, in one of these ways or whatever, and and so it's less about you. But suddenly, people are revealing
0: things about themselves without realizing they're revealing it. Mm, good point. Yeah, that's a real good point. That and that's usually that's one of the things that I've learned is that when you kind of start having certain conversations, you know, rather than just a chatty small talk, but certain conversations where there are like these long form formats that people start to reveal them more about themselves if you just kind of let them talk. So yeah makes sense. Yeah. And then they So I like, mean
1: one of the one of the most amazing things I ever heard was a guy, American and I cannot remember his name, would it be 20 years ago he was out here in, in Australia um and he was doing a roadshow for the Yellow Pages. You know, remember that old big yeah. thing. Yeah, right. Yeah. Right. So, and a friend of mine was one of the top salesmen for Yellow Pages, and he took me to a breakfast to hear the speaker. And what he spoke about this is pre internet days, this is whatever. He spoke about the fact that he would go around to people's houses in his days when he was selling vacuum cleaners door to door. Okay. Okay. Or encyclopedias. I can't remember what he was selling right now. And he would walk into your home and look around. You know, did you have uh, four pairs of sneakers outside the door that looked like your whole family were runners or exercise people? Right. Okay. Or in the house, did he see photos of you skiing at, you know, wherever, Whistler or, you know, um, you know, so, you know, and then, you know, Ray, you know, ask the questions about those things, those hobbies. Did you see golf clubs in the corner or golf shoes outside or? You know or scuba gear or something so why did he look for those clues because he had had postcards made this is before internet and email he had had postcards made of him playing golf him doing scuba diving him skiing him playing chess whatever the case was right sure and he would leave your house pull around the corner write a postcard dear chris thanks for having me in your home today Um, I really enjoyed meeting you um, and not reference the back of the thing, which was him doing something that he noticed you've done. Okay. Okay. And he would then put a stamp on and drop it in the nearest mailbox. And so two days later, or depending on how quickly your mail system works, you'd get this postcard from him, just thanking you for having the meeting. But on the back of it would be him trying to connect with you on a deeper level by saying, "Oh, look, here's me out skiing, and I noticed that you've got ski photos in your house, so you must also like skiing, true, but without that subtlety of um, of saying that out loud, mm. so I, I I love that, and I've always tried to find a fun. way. so so in my mortgage business, I have fourteen and a half thousand clients, Wow. and a client called me out of the blue yesterday. He's the, son, the son-in-law son of an existing client who I dealt with about two years ago, but never proceeded. He just gave me his life story at the time. His wife was on maternity leave and I said, when she's back at work, let's talk. So he called me and we were talking and I said, so are you still working as a carpenter? And he went, there was dead silence on the phone. I said, did I get that wrong? He says, no, the reverse. You were so accurate. And I called you on your mobile and you're in the car. Okay. And it's just freaky. And I said, all I did was I built this filing system in my head of little facts about all 14,000 of those people not so i can go chris you were an engineer working for abc and you'll say no i was actually just a project planner and i worked for xyz right but i had this sort of industry right and so i may not know the detail of that of of everything but i've i've internalized enough information
0: to build that report with the clients very quickly yeah and it's it it goes unnoticed like knowing like a remembering a person's name or remembering like what you just said like kind of pretty close like the industry they're in or what they were doing like how much that actually means to a person how much that actually just inside the brain they don't realize how much like what poor you just said they just built or built with somebody it's like when you were talking about with the real estate Analogy when they remember the salesman just because you know they hit a couple of different things with them, but you know just remembering people's names goes a long way compared yeah. to what people you know it's it's underlooked. Well, just simple thing
1: when you teach when I work with companies and I say to them, "Let me hear what happens when you answer the phone." Unlike a friend of mine, a, a speaker colleague who embarrasses people like on stage when he does that. Hmm. I don't. I say to them. What happens when your receptionist or somebody in your office answers the phone? Sure. And they say, they say, hello, my name is John. This welcome to XYZ Industries. Right. So the question is, what's the last thing the person hears on the phone is XYZ Industries? But that's who they're meant to call. Yeah. So don't tell them that. Go, hi. So so my team at the mortgage business answer the phones. Whoever answers, house and home group, my name is Rail. My name is Rachel. So what's the last thing a person hears is the name. Gotcha. Then, so when, when people do that, when I phone a company and they say, American Express do that really well, they go, welcome to American Express. My name is Chris. Sure. And my first reaction, because I want to build rapport with them is, hey, Chris. Nice to talk to you. My name is Rail. Stop the sentence. Now they've internalized that my name is Rail and I've given them permission to call me Rail. Got gotcha. you. So simple interactions like that with a call center in the Philippines for American Express. Wow. But you're using the person's name straight away. Yeah. Yeah. That's uh, so it- I've trained my staff to do that. Um, that that they answer the phones like that. I mean, I've got clients of those 14 and a half thousand clients who my staff will walk into my office and go, Oh, John called today, he wants to buy another house, I'm handling it. Do you want to talk to him? I go, Are there any issues? No. Well, tell John that I'm, um, you know, I'm always available to talk to him if he wants to. Sure. And he said, yeah. and they'll say, No. John said it because they offer that straight away. They're kind of trained to do
0: that. Gotcha. And they'll go, No, John said, there's any issues he'll call you but otherwise he's happy to deal with me nice so yeah and that's beautiful man that takes one less thing off your plate too and you can focus on things yeah but but it's also the the fact is i've shown the the
1: clients the trust that i have in my team and that's then reciprocated by
0: the clients coming straight to the team member yeah is that part of just a leadership thing you developed too or is that just something you've kind of picked up along the way you read somewhere well, or just I, I didn't there? necessarily learn it. Although in our education business in South
1: Africa, we implemented the same thing of you know leading with your name and uh, when you answered the okay. phones. Um but we also had an interesting thing there about names it was quite interesting. So we used to run these guerrilla advertising campaigns. Yeah. Uh, cheap the cheapest media we could find with the biggest bang for our buck. And we always use different names on the adverts of fake people that didn't even work for us. But as a way of monitoring today, you know, on the internet, Google ads, you can go to your Google analytics and see how people got to your page. Sure. When you've got an advert running on a billboard in a, or a, a poster on a street corner, you don't know how people have seen it, where they've seen it. So we would have, you know, call Kim on this number, call Debbie on this number, and those related to specific campaigns. So when someone phoned and said, "Hi, can I speak to Debbie?" And so interestingly, we used Debbie. We had an office in a town called Durban, and when the office was closed, they would put their calls through to our switchboard in Johannesburg. So when someone phoned and said, "Um, Um, you know, I would like to speak to Debbie, we'd say, sorry, Debbie's not here today, but my name is Rail. Can I help you? All right, so they've phoned with a first name wanting to speak to Debbie. I've said, Debbie's not available. Talk to me and this is my name. Yeah. Okay, and my staff did that all the time. And so, you know, how did we work that out? coincidence um you know trying and trial and error working those things out but it worked
0: well that's cool yeah and it's working well for you obviously yeah i mean getting from where you started at and to what you've been talking about and where you're at today yeah you've been seems like everything's going super smooth for you i mean where do you see the future going?
1: you know i guess i'm i'm going back before covid i spent a lot of time traveling um because i love travel sure more importantly, speaking and sharing the message of excellence and what is excellence. Just so excellence is showing up as the best version of yourself every day. It's a very simple definition, and it's it's you or your business. But to get a business to show up as the best version of itself, it's people have to show up as the best version of themselves. And in the Australian context, you know I would turn around to companies and or to people in a company and go, you went on a bender last night you know you 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 are so hungover this morning and I go yeah I am I go well okay but are you the best version of your hungover self I'm not recommending that you come to work hungover every day but if you are show up as the best version of your hungover self and what does that mean it means admitting where you're at not necessarily to customers but to your colleagues and whatever Sure. And if you open an upfront with it, that's what it does. So, so where am I going with that? So I'm spending more and more time traveling again, I'm working on, on on the speaking, on the, my, my speaking business at railbreaker.com. And um my mortgage business runs this studio that I'm talking to you from is in my mortgage offices. I have a 14 seat classroom, hybrid classroom next to it, where I'd run a lot of small, small business training. And that's the that's what I do. I'm I'm growing the business, and working with more and more amazing mental uh, entrepreneurs and and companies that are growing and helping them on that journey to growth. Wow. So that's the future for me. 2019 was a highlight. I got to see the sunrise over Mount Everest. Wow. Um, well, I opened. I was opening speak at a conference the day before in Kathmandu. And then I paid for a driver to take me a couple hundred Ks out of Kathmandu up the top of a mountain at dawn to go and watch the sunrise of Everest and the eight other peaks of the Himalayas. It's beautiful. At this point in my life, that's what's important. It's important to get paid well to do my speaking and to share my knowledge. But on the other hand, I love the experiences. I'm happy to, to trade some money for those experiences because. At 49, I had two cardiac stents. You've got to face your own mortality and go, life is too short. You've actually got to
0: live it. Wow. Real, I think it's a beautiful way to end this podcast right there on that. Perfect. Thank you. It's been a great conversation. um, If you want to plug your book or people want to find you or anything else you want to plug, feel free to do that. Well, I mean, I'm happy to give away free copies of the book called Dive In. and The
1: book is called Dive In. Lessons learned since business school, and I will send you the link. People can download a free PDF copy at railbricker.com/slash a free book. If they want to reach out to me uh, for any of my programs, for any of the training, the courses, keynotes, railbricker.com, and I return every email. So I don't have a my I I have two PAs, but I actually am the one who actually types up the emails and sends them.
0: So I believe in that personal touch and the personal relationship. Real, thanks so much. Thanks for being here. Cool. (laughs) Okay, we're out of here, folks. See ya.